This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly. What on earth is happening? Where do we start with that evening of moderate entertainment? As Juan Pablo Vargas bundled the ball home in the 70th minute, both Spain and Germany were going out of the World Cup to Japan and Costa Rica. Costa Rica, who'd lost their opening game 7-0 and had only had one shot on target in their second game. In the end, Germany turned it around to save Spain, but Luis Enrique's men didn't return the favour. Did they even want to? It looked like they were trying, perhaps not hell for leather. Japan turned it around in three second-half minutes, the tightest of VAR checks. Let's all talk spheres, discs and planes. But what an achievement to get through this group. And Germany out in the group stage for the second World Cup in a row. All of that happened after Belgium had crashed out to the tiring Croatia. Poor Romelu Lukaku. He couldn't even get one to go in off his backside. Meanwhile, an historic day for Morocco. We'll do all that. Enjoy Harry Maguire in the Ghanaian Parliament and keep running with the World Cup period drama. As always, your questions. And that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Lars Siverton. Hello. Hi, guys. What a day of football. Yeah, it was great. Hello, Archie Rintut. Hello, Max. Hello, Jonathan Faduba. Hello. And uh, Lazy Cuttlefish writes, uh, coming a few days late, but I'd just like to remark that there is no such thing as, quote, too much of Barry Glendening's voice. I have zero interest in the Premier League and basically use this podcast as white noise to fall asleep to. But, Barry, we'll take any listener <laughs> to use this podcast in whichever way they like. Yeah, I, I think of an awful voice, but some people seem to like oh, it. It's velvety and beautiful. And an atomic kitten once told me I had the sexiest voice on radio. That is true. It is, it's not a lie, isn't it? Uh, uh, one third of atomic kitten have that taste. Uh, Thomas said, me after 45 minutes, this group is looking more predictable than Mark Langdon's diet. How disappointing <laughs> after Japan's win against Germany. After 55 minutes, this is crazier than any car park anecdote Ben Fisher could even dream of. Um I mean, I don't know where to start. Lars, it was just an extraordinary evening. Please don't start with me. This has melted my brain. Like, serious analysis is going to be hard for me today. But no, th- that was just so much fun. And it, w- <laughs> it was... I love the game. So we've had a few days of this now where we just sat constantly just discussing permutations on the WhatsApp. It's like, well, if he scores there, and if that one goes there... And, and, I, and I still maintain that the... The weirdest thing, well, one of the weird things about this was that this outcome, I think, was probably the best thing for Spain. I, I think they they are just marginally better off finishing second in this group and also getting rid of Germany. So as I think the way this kind of things thing played out is, is good. Um, Barry, there was a moment, there was a, a pub over the road that was ahead of the TV and my iPad, and there was this big cheer, and I was like, well, hang on a sec, like, because I was watching the Japan-Spain game. I was like, well, Japan have scored again, have they? It doesn't look like it. And then suddenly I looked down and Costa Rica had gone 2-1 up. And it was th- that was the moment where I just thought, this is absolutely sensational. Now, it, was, it was brilliant. Now, unlike you, I can only watch one game at a time. Because if I try to watch two, I end up watching neither. So I was watching Spain-Japan. We were getting updates from uh, Clive Tilsley. And uh, Ali McCoy was it. And... Um, was it Ali McCoy's? God, I can't remember. It was so long ago, Max. It was five <laughs> minutes ago. Yes, it was Ali. And there was a while where I didn't actually realise Spain could lose and still go through. And then it do- 
one of the, I think it was Clive mentioned. I went, oh, fucking hell, yeah, he's right. So, <laughs> so I, mean, I totally lost the plot. And then, yeah, that got me more and more excited. I mean, it was a brilliant game. And Spain completely bossed the first half, like absolutely monster Japan in the first half. Japan just couldn't get the ball off them. But they were only a goal up at half time, And then things changed very, very quickly, quite early in the second half. Japan manager made another couple of inspired substitutions. Ritsu Duan uh, scored one and set up another, which was controversial. I'm sure we'll get to that. And um, there was no evidence, you know, in the latter stages of the game of any kind of collusion. Spain were trying to get an equaliser, despite the fact that they were going through. And uh, I suppose that's that's commendable. They could have just downed twos, both sets of players. But I think at the full-time whistle, Spain's players weren't sure whether they'd gone through or not. They looked a bit confused. So um, I think that's probably why they were pressing so hard for an equaliser. And it ended with them sort of taking pot shots from 25, 30 yards, which was, you know, great for Japan uh, because they, they were able to keep them at bay. But it, it was an absolutely sensational evening's football. And I can't believe FIFA are even considering tampering with the, the 14 group format. Although there is talk now that that plan might be shelved. GSG says, Max, we're expecting to have to talk about overhanging balls this evening. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I know like quite a lot of you have got quite exercised about ITV just constantly to talk about that one decision for Japan as opposed to the whole evening's sort of complete insanity. But it was a big moment in the game, Jonathan. I, do you agree with Barry? I didn't think that Spain were absolutely going for it late on. I thought they were trying to score, but in a kind of, we're just sort of trying. I don't think, I'm not accusing them of anything because I don't think it was that serious. I don't know what you think. I don't know what you think. I think that is kind of the way Spain play. And I think that's yeah. potentially going to be a problem for them as the tournament goes on. They, they they don't have, well, ironically, their plan B scored a goal and then was substituted when they were 2-1 down because the plan B is usually Morata and he was taken off, obviously. So he he's that focal point. Everyone else is like sort of tiki-taka wizard pulling out nice triangles. And that's pretty much what they were doing for most of the second half. Uh, so I don't think they looked like they knew what was going on in the other game. And to be honest, even people watching the game didn't really know. So I don't think Spain in the middle of the match knew uh, what was going on. Um, but they didn't really have that urgency, like you say, of like really going for it. But again, as I say, I don't, I don't really think they have uh, the ability to play in any other way, really. Um, it was a crazy, crazy game. The only comment really I have to make that hasn't been made yet is I, I feel like Brighton are winning this tournament somehow. Um, uh, Mito- Mitoma coming on for, for uh, Japan. I don't know why um, the manager, um, Moriasu's not been playing him. He, he seems to sort of save him and bring him on in the second half. Um, he came on, again, was excellent. He, same against Costa Rica, even though they didn't win that game. He came on on the wide left-hand side, sorry, and was really good. Um, obviously, you've had Purvis Estupinian for, has been really good. Moises Caicedo has been really good, although Ecuador got knocked out. You've got Alexis McAllister last night um, for Argentina, a Brighton player. I think Brighton's squad value has skyrocketed in, in this tournament, but... I really like Japan's uh, football. I like the way they play. I like the sort of um, the style of play they have. And they've beaten Germany and Spain, so they're f- fully yeah. deserved. So fair yeah, play exactly. to them. Archie, there was a moment early enough, probably in the first half, when I messaged you saying, how the hell did Costa Rica beat Japan? And then suddenly Costa Rica got really quite good in the Germany game after that. 
whether it was Costa Rica becoming good or Germany just took their foot off the gas so much after the first 10 minutes, as if they were the favourites in a cup tie who had, after yeah 10 minutes, worked out their opponents and said, ah, you know what, we've got this. And complacency, arrogance, whatever you want to call it, repeating itself from the Japan game, it's, it's a terrible situation for Germany. And there are going to be big questions asked now of whether Hansi Flick stays on as coach, even though he's got his contract up until the, the, the next major tournament, which is the Euros in Germany. So there is an extra pressure on that. On the team director as well, Oliver Bierhoff. I, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't understand. To go back to your original point, Costa Rica looked so harmless for for so much of that half, and and even when they did break forward, it didn't look like they had the necessary players forward to reach the goal. But there was that moment when Antonio Rudiger and David Raum combined for. Yeah, an, another defensive lapse, which has been the story of, of Germany at major tournaments since Euro 2016, including the semi-final that they played against France. It's now in each of their last 11 games at major tournaments that not only have they conceded, but they've gone behind as well. And for me, it speaks to a lack of balance in this team that Hansi Flick has also not been able to address. Yeah, really, you mentioned the bad defending, Archie. Mm. I mean, they were doing some strange thing as at the back. I mean, I mean, some of these are these are players who play for, for pretty big football clubs and are normally not quite so goofy. I mean, is there anything about the Germany setup that makes them do these strange things? Because it's not the only game we've seen this. Uh, I know they're not always the most reliable of folk, even uh, domestically, but man, it's so much strangeness going on. I think it is. it is about having the necessary puzzle pieces in the right places. I, if, if we look at the fact that Benedict Hervedes, who is and was not a left-back, played every single minute of Germany's uh, victorious 2014 World Cup campaign, for example. And I think that it's not just about the defence. I think you do defend as a team. And, and all the things need to be working for you correctly. And, and I, I take it back to the balance there of, sure, like individual lapses from the likes of Nicolas Zula consistently in this tournament. Antonio Rudiger had his first as well. David Raum, I didn't think, looked too good defensively apart from in the Spain game. But yeah, there there is something wrong with, I think, the way that Hansi Flick is trying to jam in too many of the big names of this side. I think that Ahead of this game, it would have been a justified call to leave out Ilkay Gundogan and Thomas Muller or one of Goretzka, uh, Gundogan and Kimmich just to give this team what it needed and to to allow Jamal Musiala to play at number 10 and to put Niklas Fulkrug up front. And then you don't have to worry so much about about things defensively but why everyone's in the wrong position which is something that you worry about quite a lot watching this team that's it if, if everybody is 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 playing slightly out of position then i think that that's going to continually unnerve you and I, I think that that has also played a big factor here also that the quality of of of, of the of the best german defenders is is not there right now as well it, it is a problem area but i think 
that's a tactical thing you address as a coach. You you play to what your weakness of the side is, and then as, as when I say you play to the weakness of the side, you address that in terms of the system as opposed to what's happened here, which is you concentrate so much on the strength that the the gaps between the strength and the weaknesses are so big that then you lose the you, you lose the necessary balance that you need to be able to get results and indeed encouraging performances because Germany looking vulnerable on the counter is something that we said in the in the in the preview uh, for this tournament about three years ago so yeah it's been uh or, or, or at least it feels three years ago. I think it's my. I think it's the third tournament in the row. We've said that before the <laughs> tournament, and it's the third tournament in the row. It's turned out to be true. It's, it's a bit of a shame, isn't it, that 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 Musiala's not going to be in this tournament anymore? Because I mean, mm. he did keep doing what he seems to do a lot of, at least in this World Cup, which is dribble around every member of the opposition <laughs> and then boot it over the bar. But it yeah. was really exciting to see. And I know we're jumping between both games, but that sort of seems right given what what we saw. Um, Jonathan, how good is Spain? I, I, I find it hard. Like you make such instant judgments on the first game, and then you have to rethink after each one. And just watching that, they just didn't. Whether they didn't want to win, you know, <laughs> that's beside the point. But like. Unai Simon doesn't seem great in goal, does he? I mean, it's sort of that first one he probably should have saved. And I just can't tell. Like, Gabby and Pedri, I know are brilliant, but in the last couple of games, haven't really been there. Yeah, it's, it's the beauty of this World Cup. I mean, I have to say, it's, it's delivering for me, like, in terms of the, the, the quality on the pitch. At halftime of the match, I, I was sort of saying to someone that I think, you know, Spain are, like, favourites to win it. You know, I was like, they, you know, they played so well, like Barry says, in you know, that first half. They just completely dominated them. Um, and I was thinking, yeah, they're, they're the favourites, them and France maybe. And then about 25 minutes later, they're about to go out. It's like, what is, what is going on? Um, they're good, as they showed obviously in the Costa Rica game, for example, the 7-0. But but I feel like if they don't get their own way in certain games, like that, that sucker punch from Japan, just the two, you know, the two early second half goals, they kind of reeled from that Spain and they didn't really, they, there was still quite a lot of time to get back into that game and, you sort of feel like a team, maybe like a France or even, dare I say it, an England would have the tools to maybe get back into that game with the quality that they have maybe from the bench and sort of the game changers they have. Spain, a lot of the players, like you just said there, Max, um, are, are really young, like re- re- you know, really young. You've got mm. Gavi and, and Pedri there, you know, there's 18 and 20, I think. You've got sort of Abde who, who came in for Jordi Alba as a, uh, and, and Ansu Fati came on. You know, a lot of these players don't really have that sort of tournament experience of a World Cup, and you you just wonder like when it's going when it's going their way, it's lovely, it's amazing, it's it's, it's fantastic to watch, and they 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 rip teams apart with in you know in an intricate sort of way, but you just wonder when games are going to start getting even even the Germany game. I felt you know the the draw, there was sort of parts of the game where they dominated it, and parts of the game where they kind of fell out of it. And I, I think that might potentially end up costing them um, as the tournament goes on. I mean, there were so many moments in this game, Barry, that I'm sort of loath to spend a lot of time on did that ball cross the line or not. But Ale says a lot of people on Twitter don't understand parallax, which is not a word I'd, I'd probably have to Google that right now. And also the entire ball being past the plane of the line. This is include people in the TV studio, which is pretty lame. I'm not saying it was defo over the line, but the camera is at completely the wrong angle. I mean, it is, in, it is a key moment in that game. And the wait for the Japanese fans was like utterly agonizing, wasn't it? Yeah, for anyone who may have seen this, this is Matoma's pullback for the second goal. And the ball looked to have crossed the line. And if you look at a still, the bottom of the ball, the bit that's touching the grass, has clearly crossed the line. But the ball is a sphere. 
<laughs> so the right-hand side of the ball has not necessarily completely crossed the line. And I, I would say, looking at that picture, I, I actually drew a little line down the screen of my phone <laughs> and conclusively proved to myself that the entire ball had not crossed the entire line. So now, as Graeme Souness and Gary Neville pointed out at tedious length after the game with um, Souness crying conspiracy, FIFA conspiracy, we haven't seen the official definitive shot that proves the entire ball. But it's like that Manchester City-Liverpool game. I, I'm going to say it's going to be millimetres, like 10, yeah. 15 millimetres of ball has not crossed the line. But regardless of whether it did or not, the goal was eventually given, having been initially disallowed, and that's that. <laughs> I do think it's a bit of a shame, and I, I get why it's a contentious talking point, but it was such a big night for Japan, such an amazing evening's football, and and the ITV punditry team devoted almost the entirety of their post-match conversation to this, had the ball crossed the line or not, chat. It wasn't even this post-match as well, was it? The Germany game was ongoing at the final whistle and, and sort of Gary Neville went into this spiel about communicating decisions and FIFA need to work on communicating decisions. And the Germany-Costa Rica game was still in stoppage time. It was like, it was, it was a strange reaction to such an you know, amazing night of football. What I think they should have spoken more about, and of course, ironically, what we haven't really gotten to yet, so we're guilty as well, is... Uh, what an amazing achievement it is for Japan, because uh, this is a team I remember seeing in previous tournaments, and I've often thought that this is so close to being a good team. <laughs> like There's so much good uh, going on with the Japanese national team. They've got a lot of players who work really hard, of course, but also have a very like, increasingly high level of skill and, and go forward with good endeavor and move the ball well, but they've always kind of lacked a little bit of cutting edge and maybe a little bit in front of each box, basically. And, and seeing them beat uh, both Spain and Germany to progress is just amazing. It's fantastic. And I guess, I mean, Archie will Archie will be the person on the panel who knows this team the most because half of them play in the Bundesliga, right? <laughs> this was, this was going to be my point. I think the most galling thing for Germany is that the players who've scored all of Japan's goals so far all play in Germany. <laughs> I, we're talking Ritsu Doan, who, who has done... Okay, so far, being part of a very good Freiburg team who are second in the Bundesliga so far this season. We're then talking about Takuma Asano, who has barely played uh, for for Bochum, who are <laughs> not played since September, who are in a relegation battle. And then Ao Tanaka, who plays in the second division at Fortuna Dusseldorf, is the one who scores the winning goal tonight. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, but Max, I've, I've got a question. Uh, yeah. What? What exactly is a parallax? <laughs> oh, I've got it now. Uh, thank you to producer Lucy. Uh, parallax is the observed displacement of an object caused by the change of the observer's point of view. Mm. In astronomy, it is an irreplaceable tool for calculating the distances of faraway stars. So that's what we needed. I have to say, I'm still none the wiser. <laughs> Peter Walton on parallaxes is what this broadcast needed. This reminds me of, of our CryptoPod special. <laughs> I was even more ignorant on the subject. I was going to say, don't invest After in we've parallax. Spoken about it Whatever you hour. do. It sounds like something that 
you take to ease your bowel movements whilst also curing oh, a headache. Like, right, I see, yeah. I could, do, I could do the voiceover for that, couldn't I? <laughs> Problems downstairs. <laughs> Parallax. Um, uh, uh, Joe says, are Japan still too nice or is tidying the dressing room intrinsically linked to being good at football now? Uh, that was after, was it Roy Keane was saying that, you know, like, they shouldn't be tidying up. <laughs> I, I missed that that's amazing yeah I, I thought with Rob saying like, I've been switching between these games I've managed to miss Spain's goal Costa Rica's goal both Japanese goals so far I don't know if he got any of the goals uh, by the end of it um, uh, James says does Graham Sooner's choice of overshirt mean I need to change my wardrobe I didn't quite like his sort of khaki look tonight and Matty says I guess the Bundesliga can start up again now Archie suddenly has three weeks free in his diary well, no because they're missing all these Japanese players so they can't be starting <laughs> up again <laughs> you got, are you on holiday now Archie what happens to you uh, well I'm, I'm, I'm actually going down under in a few weeks oh. um, yeah I, I mean um, I, I don't know if we'll see each other but uh, yeah Oh, well, you know, I, I think he was fishing for an invitation there, Max. Thank you, Barry. Jesus. Like, just Max looking into the distance, being like, yeah, yeah, sure, cool, cool. No worries. I think he knew. You want to stay in. Oh, don't worry. I've sorted out my accommodation, mate. Okay, yeah. Oh, I was just having a little baby. coffee. Yeah. You don't want to, like, I'll meet you for a coffee. You don't, yeah, yeah. It's not interesting for anybody. This oh, is good. an amazing game of football. We're complaining about ITV talking about the rules um, of the game, and we're sort of organizing our diary. <laughs> I was going to say. There are probably a few things to unpack, uh, just from a German point of view still. The fact that Thomas Muller uh, has seemingly announced that this will be his last game for Germany, which is, yeah, I, I think, <laughs> to be honest, when he was retired by Joachim Love a few years ago, that was probably actually the right time for him to go out in hindsight. Because, yeah, I think him coming back into the team seemed like more of an ego boost rather than him being able to actually fit into the way that this new Germany needed to play. But that said, at his best, he was unique and yeah, will still be remembered as, as one of Germany's finest national team players at, at his peak. But yeah, um, when it comes to the, when it comes to the post-mortem, the fact that I could go back over the last three major tournaments, Max, that they've played and you find a similarity in, in the way that Germany have played in each of their, their group stage games. A bad first game, followed by something of a revival in the second game. And then the third game, bad once again. They just happened to be very lucky against Hungary last time that Leon Goretzka actually dug them out. And also, there's a certain point where if you're dribbling past everybody and then you continue to shoot, it tells you as well how much 19-year-old Jamal Musiala trusts his teammates in those <laughs> positions. And he's like, you know what? Even me on a bad day, I think I'm better than you. Uh, look, there was history in that Germany-Costa Rica game, uh, an all-female on-field refereeing team uh, taking charge of a men's World Cup game for the first time. Stephanie Frapper, who uh, we all know by now is a brilliant referee, uh, was in charge with assistants Neuser Back and Karen Diaz-Medina. So that is progress and that is good. Um, uh, Croatia-Japan on Monday, Morocco-Spain on Tuesday. Uh, I didn't have those Barry down as the uh, last 16 games that would happen. We don't need to preview them now because we've chatted for quite a while and we've still got to do Belgium going out and, and Morocco getting through. So we should probably end part one. Uh, yes, Lars? I would just briefly urge people to find, go on the internet and find the uh, photo that Kai Havertz had to post for because he was awarded a man of the match. <laughs> he is not He is not happy. No. He's I've just posted this in the group. It is. It is so <laughs> glorious. I just wish I could have been a fly on the wall to the 
the conversation between the FIFA delegate being like, yes, you do still need to have this photo taken <laughs> before Havertz then steps in front of the camera because I... Oh, oh man. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is a priceless photo. <laughs> Memeable. <laughs> oh, wow. That's extraordinary. Um, okay. That'll do for part one. Archie, you can go to bed now. You can go on holiday. We'll chat to you, uh, chat to you in the new year. Thanks, mate. I'll swear. I'll see you. I'll maybe, see, I'll maybe see you soon. Well, if if so. you're not too busy. Yeah, all I right. Won't, I won't be. <laughs> Cheers, mate. Uh, Archie Cheers. up there uh, out in Germany. And we'll be back in a second. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. A, a massive thank you um, to those of you who signed up to give the Guardian money after me and Barry begged you, um, but not enough of you did. So we're begging again. I, I, that's not exactly how the email came to me from marketing, but you know, I like to be honest with people. Uh, people all over the world responded to our call from Hong Kong to South Africa, Canada and the US, probably none from the United Kingdom. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, look, if you missed out last time and you're desperate to give us some money, Please go to theguardian.com slash World Cup Daily. Support our coverage. Only takes a minute. And of course, Barry, we are, you know, this is, we also fund really important, we fund this nonsense, but also important journalism. I, I would argue this is very important journalism. In fact, I, I was listening to yesterday's pod earlier. I was, I was quite starstruck by the fact that the bass player from EMF is <laughs> yeah, a listener. And I don't think you were anywhere near impressed enough and i did actually know that the keyboard player's name was derry it's derry welfram uh that's a little nugget of trivia that's lodged in my head i've no idea why but but there you go so yeah bass player from emf uh put your hand in your pocket i know you're the bass player so you probably don't get any royalties from unbelievable but if you do you know send us a few quid of unbelievable money. Absolutely. If every time Unbelievable was played on Virgin 90s, you gave us 5p, that would be quite good, wouldn't it? Theguardian.com slash World Cup Daily. Thank you, everybody, in advance. Okay, then. Group F. Morocco win the group on seven points. Croatia through as well on five. Belgium on four. Canada with zero. Uh, let, let's start with the Croatia-Belgium game. It's sort of winner takes all. And very much, Lars, the... The four misses of Romelu Lukaku. Apparently, the XG for Croatia was 0.81 and the XG for Lukaku was 1.98. Uh, no one's home again, says Christian Benteke could have got another golden boot in this game alone. And the thing is, Lars, I thought it was funny, but when you see how devastated he was afterwards, I just feel such sympathy for him. Yeah, and I feel for him because some of the chances that looked the worst, if you really look at them, they're ball, the ball is coming at him really fast and he just doesn't have the split second he needs to adjust his body uh, to, to, to get it into the right shape, to knock it in. And it's, it, it's he's basically living out uh, an anxiety dream here, I think, in, in this game. I, I want to double-check the numbers, but the way you put it, I think Lukaku had the same XG in this game as Australia have had in the tournament so far. Right. I, I think that is correct, uh, uh, which is, I, I guess, suboptimal then to score no goals out, out of that. Uh, it was an odd one because, for me, honestly, I thought Belgium were, were pretty good. Uh, the, the, by far the best game they've they've played in the group stage. Uh, they 
were pretty defensive and careful in the first half and made sure they weren't as open and as easily picked off as they have been before. And then in the second half, obviously they had to go forward, but also as Croatia tired, they started attacking more and created some some really good chances. And uh, they were kind of fine in this game, mm. but uh, but the mistakes have already been made. And and but the issue is Barry, I think for Lukaku is. So virtually nothing else happened in this game. There was that penalty that wasn't given ultimately. Guardiola made one good challenge on Lukaku. But apart from that, the only things of note are four misses by Romelu Lukaku. Yeah, well, I was working on the Canada-Morocco game, so I got up highlights of this one in, in the intervening hour before we recorded this. And <laughs> it was basically one Ivan Perisic shot and then all of Lukaku's misses. And yeah, that they were the highlights which were chosen. So it sounds like I didn't miss much. I mean, it's gutting for him and he will get pelters for it. On any other day, you would expect him to score those unless, of course, he's playing for Manchester United at the time. But um, yeah, it, it was just bizarre. Uh, I mean, one of them, I think he's getting... I think it was the header. That wouldn't have counted anyway if he'd scored it because the ball had clearly gone wide before it was crossed. But to see his devastation at the final whistle, uh, it's totally understandable, but just just one of those days, isn't it? I have big news for you, though, Max, because I watched this slightly more closely than the Canada and Morocco that I had both on. I think Croatia are finally tired. <laughs> it's happening, Max. It's happening. Second half of this, they look really leggy. Yeah, in fact, Jonathan Wilson messaged me to say Croatia manager Zlatko Dalic just said Croatia are, quote, exhausted. So finally, after four and a half years, they are tired. <laughs> I get on the Lukaku thing, Jonathan. I, I remember there was a, a New Zealand, I think it was a New Zealand women's player who scored a hat-trick of own goals and a perfect hat-trick of own goals, left-right header. And it was obviously hilarious. And I laughed about it. And then people on Twitter said, you shouldn't really laugh at someone making mistakes. And then I sort of laughed originally at Lukaku. And I guess it's, it's just the question is, are we allowed to laugh at footballers messing up? It feels like we should be able to, because ultimately it doesn't really matter. That's why it's okay to laugh at these mistakes. But at the same time, appreciating that for these individuals, these are sort of, sort of seminal, devastating moments. And if I had a seminally devastating moment, I wouldn't want everyone to laugh at me, I don't think. Yeah, that's the nature of sport, really, isn't it? That's the that's the beauty of it. I think I think it's okay to laugh. Like you, you, you can get a pass for laughing, um, Max. But I think the the problem with it and why a lot of people will feel a little bit awkward for Lukaku is while there'll be some laughter, there's also going to be streams of abuse for the next few days. And I felt for him immediately because he just know exactly what he's going to have to go through. Don't have to spell it out. Um, in the next few days, he's going to be the scapegoat which I think is incredibly unfair. Um, Dries Mertens missed a massive chance in the first half, uh, which will probably not be, will probably go ignored. But all in all, I mean, I kind of agree with Lars. If you if you watch back the, the four chances, one of them's out of play anyway, wouldn't have counted. One, Guardiola makes an incredible, um, sort of closes him down, the one that hits the post, and it's obviously unlucky off the inside of the post. Um, and Guardiola, again, like I say, did really well to close him down. I think Josco Guardiola, 20 years old, he put in one of the performances of the tournament. He was outstanding. Okay, the third one, he's, he's a bit rusty. He's not played He's not played much football. I think he's played 30 minutes in total in the last two months, roughly. And the fourth one is obviously a appalling miss. So, yeah, you, you can laugh. But I think the problem with Lukaku is he's kind of scapegoated a lot. And I feel as though a lot of people will be enjoying it because it's Lukaku. And I, I sometimes think that the abuse he takes goes a little bit overboard uh, compared to given the fact that he 
how good a career he's had. He, I think he's still one of the top ten, if not sort of top twelve Premier League goal scorers of all time of like in history in the Premier League era. Um, and those little things go overlooked when you judge Lukaku, which you know he will be laughed at a lot in the next few days. And um, as long as it's like good, light-hearted laughter, then I'm all for it. And I mean, my instinctive reaction to the question is sort of at the end of the day, the guy's a multimillionaire and most people listening to the pod in this country are like agonizing on whether they can afford to turn on the heating or not in an hour and in the evening, every game. And Romelu Lukaku is going to go home and still be a multimillionaire. He's going to be fine. But of course, psychology doesn't really work that way. And and, and, and I think the no. amount of bullying, I mean, there's some players who seem to just attract more abuse than others. And Lukaku's always been one of those. And there are reasons that uh, Jonathan hints at, which are certainly present, but there's something more as well. There are some that just kind of become like the way we've seen with Maguire in this country. Yeah. And like Phil Jones as well, I guess. Yeah. It's like a snowball of abuse where people who don't really understand or watch football that much just understand that this is a guy it's apparently okay to laugh at and it just goes completely out of control. And I feel like it's been with like that with Lukaku a few times. So I do think he's one of those players who I feel more sad for when things don't go his way, if that makes sense. It's a flippant question to say, who do you really revel? I mean, there's an obvious answer <laughs> to that question. It's so obvious, <laughs> yeah. we don't need to say it out loud. Yeah, he, it's all right. He didn't touch that header. Anyway, uh, uh, Roberto Martinez um, has confirmed that was his last game as Belgian manager. Uh, that was my last game. He said it was emotional, as you can imagine. Uh, Lars did send us a, a video. It seemed like he moonwalked off camera, which was tremendous. And, and also, he said in the post-match interview, now is not the moment, he said, and Moon walked out of there. And then, like, a few minutes later <laughs> yeah, in the no. presser, he said, well, apparently now is the moment. I've had a, yeah. I've had a think. <laughs> I wanted to say it in the press conference, not to the p- p- post-match reporter. Might someone have, from the Belgian FA have had a word with him between the two interviews <laughs> to tell him it was the moment? <laughs> <laughs> so what happened was what happened was he was moonwalking out and then the head of the Belgian FA did like a smooth criminal dance <laughs> down and went down he went actually mate time to go and then move back up again um how Barry do we how do we how do we rate Martinez's tenure in, in charge of Belgium because I've actually heard that you know he was in charge but not when they were absolutely at their peak and then it was I can't remember who was in charge before him but sort of he's had this golden generation while they were always a bit on the fade. Really? He's been in charge for six years, hasn't he? It's quite a long time. I mean, That is quite a long time now you say that, yeah. But I just want to be fair to every person. Now, now I've been nice to Lukaku. I have to be nice to everyone for the rest of the pod. I think if I was a Belgian fan, I would think it was a failure, total failure, that they haven't won anything. Because when you look at the players they've had at that time, and... I thought it was a really weird appointment in the first place, to be honest. Um, if he was Belgian and had been given the job on the back of his efforts at Wigan and Everton, you might understand it. But I know he won the FA Cup with Wigan, but apart from that, it was also in a season he got them relegated. He wasn't particularly impressive at Everton, and then he hasn't impressed me at, at Belgium. But the counter-argument, which I've heard, and that's fair enough, I suppose, is that the two major tournaments they've been knocked out of in his tenure uh, before this one, they were beaten by the eventual winners. But I, I think that's a bit of a lame defence. Is it? I mean, it seems quite a good one. It seems like quite a good defence to me, doesn't it? The the, the draw is, is destiny, right? <laughs> well, why why not beat them instead <laughs> of lose to them? 
<laughs> but this would be the argument because we have you, this you don't I, know I, they're going to be the eventual winners when you line up for the national anthems at the start of the game no but the point is if if he had gotten to a final or a semi-final or if his record was similar to southgate's at england maybe well don't get me started would, he, he, oh, but yeah his legacy would be much more positive right whereas it isn't and so it isn't but the reality is if that belgium team had had the opponents that england have had in those tournaments I think they probably might have done equally as well. I guess the thing to bring up with Martinez is they've been amazing in qualifying. I mean, I know it doesn't really matter, but they like routinely they've been thumping teams, blowing them away, doing really well. And really, this tournament was one too far anyway. I mean, this wasn't the moment. Like the the flaws in this team were pretty obvious. And I didn't think they'd go out in the group stage. I'll be honest, but I didn't think they'd do much either because. You know, Lukaku and Hazard are still big names, but if you look at how the last sort of two years, 18 months have gone for them, they're not in a great place right now. Uh, the, the, the defense that was old last time around is not really old, and the people coming through haven't really quite hit the heights yet. So, you know, I, I was expecting them to get knocked out in the next round rather than this one, but uh, so one game fewer than expected for me as well. Yeah, I mean, Mark Wilmots was in charge before, and he. I was reading that someone someone was basically saying def- that defeat to mm. Wales wasn't really acceptable. That was a game that they absolutely should have won in the quarterfinals of the Euros, wasn't it? And they they could have gone on. Basically, as soon as Moussa Dembele doesn't play for you and you've had him in your midfield, it can never be as good, <laughs> right? Because he was so wonderful. Meanwhile, Jonathan, Croatia, they also look old and tired and haggard, don't they? But but they're sort they're wily. Is wiliness enough? Like, how far do you think they can go? Wiliness can be enough if you can physically deal with the, the rest of the tournament. I thought that Croatia were quite lucky, actually, in this game to not, to not lose. It's quite strange because this is, this is what happens in tournament football, isn't it? You, you, there's sweeping judgments on little moments that can, that can you know, could have altered the, altered the game and I guess the course of history. I was, Belgium, actually, I felt got their tactics right. I thought Martinez on this occasion got it right Like in terms of he, he crowded out the... You know, Croatia's forwards um, forced them out wide where Sosa and Juranovic didn't really do much. I thought Sosa had quite a poor game on the left side. His delivery was, was poor and, and sort of crowded out um, uh, Croatia's midfield uh, of, you know, Mo- uh, Modric, Brozovic and, and uh, Kovacic, who, who were like their, you know, their key men. So I, I did feel like Belgium were probably, like, like last said at the top of the show, kind of the, you know, they probably did deserve to edge it. Croatia... I think in the wide areas they just they just lack and both Belgium tried to force them to down those wide areas which they're not very good at they're not very quick um, you know the idea that uh, Belgium were over the hill and too old well Modric is in the middle there and he's you know nearly heading towards forty so I think Croatia I, I can't see them getting too too far but then again they they do have tournament know how which is something that is you know we have to um, consider for Belgium I just I think the question about Martin is. Alan Shearer and that we're having a debate after the match where on, on the commentary and sort of saying, well, Belgium, the, the manager couldn't drop uh, Hazard and he, you know, it wasn't, he couldn't drop these players because they have a hundred caps for Belgium, which I found quite a sort of curious point because isn't, isn't that the whole point of being a manager, like making those sort of tough decisions seems strange to me. It's like the idea that you couldn't drop anyone as a hundred caps and Peter Shilton is still <laughs> playing for England. Class is permanent, Max. Formest temporary. Exactly. Class is um, permanent. <laughs> um, let's move on to the Canada-Morocco game. Morocco through to the knockouts for just the second time in their history, first time since 86. Best group stage performance by an African side in men's World Cup history of seven points. Algeria 
1982, got six points the next best. Jonathan, you said last week how disappointed you'd been with African sides, which at the time was fair. And since then, both Senegal and Morocco are now through and Morocco deservedly so. Yeah, I'm delighted. I think I think it sort of um, proved my point to a certain extent. What what I was lamenting, I suppose, last week was that they they weren't maybe just going for it. I thought I, I felt in moments of games they showed a little bit of timidity. Some of the uh, teams in the earlier in the in the opening games, but I think what they what they proved, for example, it was the Cameroon game. I think that I was talking about after that, you know, that, in that mm-hmm. situation. But Cameroon, for example, proved against um, was it Serbia that they can they can you know they once they were three one down they came back and and started to show that 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 ability that they have. Um, Abubakar coming off the bench and you know Morocco this is an unbelievable achievement for them and it's the first time since World Cup 2014 that there's more than one African side in the in the knockout stages uh, well, I think it was Nigeria and Algeria at 20, in 2014 and now it's obviously um, and it could be more than could be more Ghana of course is still to come potentially so I think one of the conclusions I had to this is I feel as though it's nice to see sort of I think the African nations trusting their own managers and I think that's been a key point to this uh, some of the performances at this tournament I think Aliou C say for example the continuity he's brought for Senegal uh, he's he's you know been a really good manager and I think in years past he wouldn't have got the job it would have been some you know maybe like a sort of D-list Claude Lois. it would yeah. have been Claude Lois, <laughs> wouldn't it Gerard Troussier Ali Hossage someone like that and, and who would have come in and not really that bothered if you, if you look at the case of Morocco specifically obviously they, they, they got rid of their manager and they brought in um, you know, a local-based manager who won a Champions League, the African Champions League, sorry, with um, Wydad Casablanca, um, Walid Regragui, I think I've got the pronunciation right there, and he he's done, he's worked wonders, obviously bringing Ziyech back into the side um, because Ziyech had fallen out with the previous manager. And I think it's really encouraging for local-based coaches in Africa that that a lot of the, the managers they just have that affinity with the players. You can see the um, the affinity that the Moroccan players have with Raguigui. He's really like G'd up that side and I felt he's really motivated them. And that's something that Morocco have lacked in previous tournaments. They've always been a little bit um, tepid, whereas in this one, they look really, really fired up for it. And even substitutes coming in really look up for it. So I think that's one uh, really positive thing for African football that's come out of this tournament so far. Yeah, there was a good moment at the end where they... They tried to lift him up for the bumps and he was having absolutely none of it. And then they had a huddle and eventually they did get him up in the air. Barry, you did the minute by minute, didn't you? And, and look, they deserved it, Morocco. Canada helped them out, certainly with the, the opening goal, which was hilarious, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I think Morocco are going to take some beating in this tournament. Um, a mm. very good side. This was the first goal they conceded in seven games uh, and it was an own goal, uh, which makes Naef... Aguerd, the joint top, uh, he's the Moroccan centre-back and he's now their Canada's joint top scorer at World <laughs> Cup Finals. <laughs> so fair play to him for that. And he also, uh, he, he was probably Canada's man of the match because he, he scored their goal and then he strayed offside uh, and his decision to do so into the line of Canada goalkeeper Milan Borgen's vision, which... Uh, meant that Yusuf El Nezri's, what he thought was his second goal, was ruled out for offside. So, uh, Neaf Agward, a friend to Canadians everywhere, um, and they will remember his name. But, uh, yeah, the first goal was very unfortunate. Milan Borgen, the Canadian goalkeeper and skipper, he was sold short by a terrible back pass, galloped out of his box to beat, I think it was El Nazri to the ball, uh, and then just inexplicably passed it straight to Hakim Ziyech, who just chipped him straight back over his head and into the empty net. 
So that was unfortunate. Yusuf El Nezri put Morocco two up with a nice finish, uh, chasing a sort of speculative ball down the channel and then just buried it past Borjan, who probably should have done better at his near post. And uh, yeah, kind of got a goal back through Aguirre's own goal. And uh, we're very unlucky not to get an equaliser when Atiba Hutchinson, who's probably playing his last game for them, I think he's 39. He walloped a header off the crossbar, hit the underside of the bar, bounced on the line and back out again. And uh, one of his teammates was unable to steer the header home. Morocco are good. I definitely think they are good. And I wouldn't be surprised if they go further into the competition. Canada have finished second worst team in the tournament on goal difference to Qatar. Interestingly, my friend uh, Jonathan, who whose dog you have met, they picked um, Canada in the pub sweepstake, and there's a 20-quid prize for the worst team. So Jonathan and Norman were, were rooting for um, Canada today because they got Qatar, so they take the prize for worst team. And interestingly, Canada's manager, John Herdman, used to teach Jonathan when he was a, a teacher in concert many years ago, before oh. he went into the old football management. So he's done him a favour there. I think Canada can leave their tournament with their heads held high. They've finished second worst on goal difference, but they're in a different level to Qatar. Yeah, Christian says, congratulations to Atiba Hutchinson for his 101st and likely final cap for Canada. Many Canadians dreamed their whole lives of seeing their team run out of the World Cup. It's disappointing not to win, but the boys played attacking football, showed the world just how far we've come. Meanwhile, Jess says, a lot of folks in Canada are saying they're proud of this team. Should we be? Qualifying was a great achievement, but I watched all of our qualifiers. We dominated at the World Cup. We were hopelessly naive and unprepared. Statistically, only Qatar have been worse. I don't feel proud. I, I think that's harsh. Yeah, I think that's yeah, very yeah, harsh. Yeah. They're nowhere near as bad as Qatar. Like, nowhere near. Mm. No, but they're not as bad. But actually, Lars, it, like, you could, if you were a Canada fan or, a, or the, you know, part of their side, be like, they really, with a bit more savvy, yeah. they actually could be That's through. That's true. I just want to say that as uh, <laughs> being from a country that hasn't been in the major tournament for, like, 20 years, you know, if we did manage to qualify and then performed like Canada have in the group stage but went out because we couldn't quite put the ball away uh, in one of the games... You know, you'd be disappointed for a few days, but then you look back at it and think, you know, they went there, they gave it a good go. They, you know, they, they were positive. They wanted to play football. I, I'd i be at peace with that. I don't know. Maybe I'm just a chilled out person with stuff like that. Ah, oh, super chill laugh. Yeah, yeah, I like yeah. it. Yeah, of course. I mean, if we have time, you mentioned Claude Leroy. <laughs> I mean, you obviously know him very well or know of him. I think some of our listeners might not be aware. I just think it's worth taking two minutes to run through because he has had a truly unhinged career as a coach. Because he's, he won the AFCON with Cameroon in 1988. And just after that, he was in charge of Senegal, then Malaysia, then back to Cameroon, then in charge of Strasbourg, then went to China for a spell in Shanghai. Then he was suddenly at Cambridge United. Of course he was. Followed by a stint in charge of the Democratic Republic of Congo, then Ghana. Yeah, it's a natural call. That's a natural run, yeah. After Ghana, he was in charge of Oman. Then he had a short spell in charge of Syria in 2011. Then he went back to the Democratic Republic of Congo, switched to the other Congo before being in charge of Togo for a while, and he's last seen coaching the Malaysian under-23s. What a career the man has had. 
How do you maintain any relationships? Is what I want to know. How do you maintain any sort of any kind of regulation? You know, your local cafe, just somewhere that you know is yours. Like it's literally every day. I don't know what kind of guy he is, but I could just based off of that CV of all the people in football, you'd love to just have a glass of wine in front of a roaring fire and listen to them tell anecdotes. I mean, the man's anecdote game must be unbelievable. You'd hope so. Although, well, you know, Barry and I did six weeks on the radio with a knight of the realm who'd won Olympic medals. And we said, have you got an anecdote at 11 o'clock? He went, I don't have any. <laughs> so you never know. Maybe Claude's the same. Uh, that'll do for part two without any other business in part three. Uh, welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Um, Australia and Argentina have criticised FIFA for scheduling their last 16 match three days after... Uh, their final group game, um, saying the short turnaround treats players like robots. Rennie Mullenstein, who is the uh, Australia assistant coach, says, how can FIFA do this at such a high prestige tournament? Four-day turnovers were already short after the group stages. They go even shorter. If you want high-quality performance in a World Cup, you think uh, they could have managed it slightly differently. Uh, Lionel Scaloni, the Argentinian manager, said today, we're happy but not euphoric because it's crazy we're playing in just over two days. I can't really understand this. It's almost 1am. Tomorrow is Thursday. We could have had more rest. I mean, I guess this is the nature, Jonathan, of a Winter World Cup with a condensed schedule, games happening so fast. But do they have a point? They definitely have a point. I think the turnaround is, is, is incredibly tight. The tournament, you know, four games a day. We're, we're over halfway through the tournament, right? And I think is that's just... The natural eventuality of having a World Cup crammed in the middle of the winter season. I think if they wanted to commit to it, they maybe should have extended um, the World Cup and then maybe have more of a break. But I guess scheduling probably wouldn't have allowed that. It's a shame, really, because you want every team to be in peak condition. Um, but I suppose that's partly why they allowed sort of uh, larger squads as well. So partly, you kind of just have to get on with it. Yeah, um, I, I just can't imagine. Premier League managers moaning. It's, it's just going to be so, it's going to be so tiresome, isn't it? Uh, anticipation is building ahead of the uh, the rematch of the century, uh, which is a bold claim of uh, Ghana and Uruguay. Um, uh, Luis Suarez, of course, sent off in the last minute of extra time. That extraordinary game in 2010. Miguel Delaney was a, a presser or has quotes from Luis Suarez saying, "The first time, I don't apologise about that. I take the handball." But the Ghana player missed a penalty, not me. Maybe I apologise if I injure a player in this situation. I take a red card, the refs say penalty. It's not my fault. A Ghanaian journalist puts it to Suarez that many people in Ghana consider him the devil himself and look forward to retiring him. Um, that seems quite strong, doesn't he? Andre Ayew is the only player still in the squad since 2010, says he just wants to move on. We hope that the Ayews have moved on uh, since then. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens, I guess, Lars, won't it? I don't get it at all. It's like... It really is the equivalent of a professional foul when you just go, well, in this situation, you know, go drag him down and take a yellow card for the team. In the situation, if the ball goes in, they're almost definitely out. By blocking it, giving away a penalty and a red card, first of all, you know, he takes himself out of the competition for the next game to go through. So it's a pretty selfless act in that regard. And the other thing is you you give yourself a chance. You know, there's always a chance they miss the penalty. It was totally the right thing to do. Now, I'm sure he didn't have the time to think it through. But, but really, focusing the ire on him and uh, maybe, I don't know, I mean, to vilify anyone, but the lad who missed the penalty and the lads who missed the penalty in the shootout afterwards, that's why you lost. Uh, I just think it's completely wrong-headed. Well, of course it's wrong-headed, but it's also entirely understandable because 
you know, England still moaning about that Maradona handball in 1986. That's Mo- also stupid. Most of Ireland, you know, Thierry Henry is still a, a pantomime villain because of that handball. So, yeah, it's, it's completely understandable. But it will be interesting. I'd love if he did it again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 but Barry, it's a key distinction because Thierry Henry did something illegal and got away with it, which is definition of cheating. Whereas uh, Suarez did something illegal and took the punishment because it was worth it, which is not cheating, really. That's not what that word means. Yeah, I mean, I don't care about the Henry thing. Never did. I expected you know these things happen in football. But I'm just talking about the majority of of my compatriots. Yeah, it's interesting. I I for a while I was still annoyed with Maradona, and then I checked who was still annoyed with Maradona and who wasn't, and then I was like, <laughs> I'm siding myself with the people who aren't. It's already been mentioned on this pod. Speaking of Ghana, by the way, Harry Maguire's made it to the Ghanaian Parliament, and it's interesting we're talking about Lukaku and players that have the you know the piss ripped out of them more than others. During a debate in Ghana's parliament, Isaac Adongo branded Dr. Mamadou Bawumia an economic Maguire, <laughs> likening his performance to the defender's decline since he moved to Old Trafford. Uh, MPs are in hysterics. It's really, you should watch it. MPs are bursting out laughing as Mr. Adongo uh, accused Dr. Bawumia of scoring repeated economic own goals. Uh, Adongo told Parliament before moving to Manchester United, Maguire, quote, was tackling everybody, throwing his body everywhere. He was seen as the best defender in the world. But after his 80 million transfer to Old Trafford, Maguire became, quote, the biggest threat at the centre of Manchester United's defence. He was tackling Manchester players and giving assists to opponents, Mr. Speaker. When you see the opponents go to score, Maguire will score for them, Mr. Adongo said. Mr. Speaker, he continued, you remember in this country, we also have an economic Maguire. This economic Maguire, we're clapping saying this man is the best in managing foreign terms so i don't know if that's a badge of honor for harry Maguire. yes Lars. i mean i just laughed because it was hard not to because it's inherently funny but this is kind of what i'm talking about like he's not that bad no he really isn't it's just become a thing where i'm not saying he doesn't deserve criticism some of the performances has been poor but like it's gone completely out of control but I, I feel bad for laughing because it is an inherently funny clip. If you la- watch the clip, you will giggle. Yeah. But I can also acknowledge that it's kind of, it's a little bit wrong that it's become this way. Uh, Bill says, Didier Drogba seems a lovely bloke. Couldn't stand him as a player. Favourite pundit of this World Cup so far. Who did the pod is thinking having a good pundit World Cup? Uh, Jonathan, who's who are you enjoying uh, what listening to? Uh, I think I'm, I'm ABDM, basically. And anyone but Danny Murphy, pretty much. Um, that's that's my, oh, I don't wow. know if I'm allowed to say that, but yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I like, Feel free. You can say whatever you like. I quite like Danny. I um I did my the best phone in I ever did on the radio was was with Danny Murphy. I was doing a show with Danny, and the phone in was Have you ever been near Danny Murphy but not asked for a photo because he looked so miserable? And the phone lines like lit up like you never <laughs> believe. And, and actually, as he explained, he said, look, if you're playing for Liverpool, you need to have a resting go-away face because otherwise you just cannot live your life. It's just the fact that he's, he's outraged at decisions before they're even given by, by like, like for example, the, the Argentina game, the, the decisions are given and he's already ruled it out and is, is just adamant that it's not, a, it's not a penalty or it's not offside um, before, before doing so. But in terms of having, he's having a good World Cup, it's got to be, I think, Ali, Ali McCoy's for me is, uh, is the man. Yeah. On the trials of being a former Liverpool player, I mean, as 
as you guys know, I spent all of the last World Cup in Malta with John Arnorisa. And 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 I noticed like even then, like years after he's retired, like just walking down the street in Malta is difficult for him. The number of people who want safe selfies and stuff. So I totally buy that from from Murphy. I think that's a, that's a very fair point. Mm. Uh, Laura George as well, the the former French international. She's brilliant, I think. Actually, her and Drogba quite often on together. I really like them as a as a as a twosome. And Zavaleta, I'm enjoying as well. Of course, McCoist. And we've mentioned uh, Seb Hutchinson and, uh, and Andros Townsend getting on very well. Uh, I had an email from Toby on the subject of um, uh, David O'Doherty's dream of creating an entire World Cup players uh, who should be in a, a Bronte period drama. Um, Toby emailed us to say, uh, uh, Arthur Thiet should be a rotund small holder. Charles de Quetelera, an ardent suitor. Uh, from Belgium. Uh, the, the Canadians, David Wotherspoon should be an honest merchant, whereas Dane St. Clair, a swarthy bounder. Morocco's Elias Chair should be a rubicund publican. Surely Canada's David Wotherspoon should be the publican. <laughs> That's a very good point, isn't it? Uh, and uh, 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 Joel Campbell, uh, indentured labourer on Thiet's property, uh, he says, which is, you know, we've pretty much got a whole cast now. Uh, haven't we? And uh, finally, another dream from Jay in Michigan. Hello, Jay. Hi, Max and everyone. On the subject of listeners dreaming about the pod, the other day, before the first listener wrote in about their dream, I had a vivid dream where I was sat around the table with Max, Barry, Barney, Nikki, Wilson, Jordan, and Jesse Parker Humphreys, another who is saturating my feed lately, and two producers in a star-stacked panel. Max asked me to introduce myself as a guest on the pod, as it became obvious that I was neither an expert on the subject of the day's pod, which I cannot now recall, nor a balance to the pod's anti-American bias. The discomfort around the table was so palpable, I was startled out of my dream and proceeded to immediately alleviate myself of my stomach's contents. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, what an effect. That is incredible, isn't it? He doesn't say which end. Uh, We probably don't need that detail. Do we? Anyway, looking forward to more sleep disturbances involving members of the pod. Um, uh, thank you, Jay. And thank you to everybody uh, for listening to the pod. Um, Wait, he's looking forward to more dreams like well, that? Well, apparently so. <laughs> That's not my, That wouldn't have been my reaction. Football Weekly. It keeps you regular. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, that'll do for today. Thanks, Lars. Anytime, Max. Thank you, Barry. You're welcome. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Max. Uh, Football Weekly was produced by Lucy Oliver. Our executive producer is Danielle Stevens. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.